Hi there. Here we are again. Another Dishcast. As I speak to you, I'm looking out of my window at a beautiful blue bay, blue skies, some wild roses growing in the dune grass, and all is well with the world, at least kind of. This week, we have someone who, I guess, we've been kind of circling each other for quite a while, as it were, intellectually. Anyway, I'm glad, really psyched to have him here. His name is Patrick Deneen. He's a writer and academic based at the University of Notre Dame. He's professor of political science and constitutional studies. His books include The Odyssey of Political Theory and more recently, Why Liberalism Failed. Now, his new book is a kind of almost kind of a sequel to Why Liberalism Failed. It's what's next, really. And it's called Regime Change Toward a Post-Liberal Future. That'll get your your nerves tingling, I'm sure, and the hair on the back of your neck rising. Post-liberalism, here we come. Just a reminder that we also have coming up on the show, David Grant, speaking about his, his wonderful new book, and Dr. Tobiah Lee, otherwise known as Lee, who, the black woman who was fired as DEI director for actually believing in, you know, individual thought, treating people as individuals, hoping for maximum inclusion, those kind of things, of course, have no place in DEI. Anyway, that's probably something that our current guest will be happy to hear. He knows that I'm with him on many of these topics, but have some, some questions. Patrick, welcome to the Dishcast. Can I ask you what I ask everybody, which is, tell me about where you were born and how you grew up. Sure. Well, as I'm looking out at my uh, hotel room you know, taupe-colored walls in New York City, where I'm currently staying for a book event tonight. I'm not sure the world is well either, but I, I do have a somewhat nostalgic memories of, of growing up. I, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, not too far away from where I am right now, and grew up in what is largely considered to be the oldest town in Connecticut, founded in 1633, Windsor, Connecticut, about seven miles north of, of Hartford. It, it's the kind of, or certainly then it was the idyllic New England, Connecticut town. Uh, I, was, I grew up right downtown in a, in a neighborhood, houses with front porches, modest middle-class houses, and everything, every, everything you needed as a kid growing up, you could walk to. Schools, of course, but also the downtown, the movie theater, you know, the... The ice cream parlor, the pizza parlor. And, and your parents let like, you yeah. walk to this place. Oh, yeah. No, you. I mean, we grew up in the backyards of everyone in, you know, the, the surrounding five blocks. It was, it was, you know, I think it's, it's the kind of childhood either you, you deeply cherish or you think this is the worst imaginable upbringing and I have to get away from it. But it's very much a kind of, you know, you know, the, 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 the portrait of the, you know, kind of mid-century, you know, I was later than that, but mid-century kind of, yeah, small town. What did, you, what did your parents do? People looked out for what each other. What did your other. parents do? So my, yeah, my, my dad at that time worked for Travelers Insurance Company. So like a lot of people, he worked for the insurance industry. And my mother was, I guess they would call it a homemaker. She, she stayed at home and raised us. There you go. We have exactly, uh, it's exactly it, the same background. My dad worked in an insurance company. <laughs> my mom, my no mom kidding. was a no homemaker. Kidding. She did, she did a yeah. few jobs as, 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 as it went yeah. on. She did a little, 
she sold right. i think she she tried to sell some mortgages at one point and she she did the she took the classified ads for the local paper all of which was fun but nothing too grand but yeah yeah same my mom eventually began working for the local library part-time and did some other things do you have do you have but siblings you know it's, it's a kind of I do. Yeah, I have two brothers and a sister. I'm the oldest. But it's kind of, it's one of these idyllic American stories. I don't know exactly the timing, but I believe it was my great grandfather, either he or his father, and some of their, you know, some of their siblings traveled from Ireland to the U.S., settled in New York, became, my grand, great-grandfather was a New York City cop. My grandfather was a Long Island Railroad conductor. My father and his siblings were the first ones to go to college. And then my generation are kind of the first ones to get, you know, you know I'm college, first college professor in, in my line of the family. So the first ones to get advanced degrees. So it's, you know, it's very much that kind of trajectory of the Irish settlement of America with all of its attendant benefits as well as its attendant drawbacks, which I'm, both of these I'm keenly aware well, of. What do you think of when you think of the drawbacks? Well, I, you know, I think you can say that, and I'm sure this is going to be the topic of some of our discussion, the, you know, the kind of gradual weakening sort of, yeah, the, the, the sort of bleeding out of the, of the, of the old ways of a sense of strong solidarity with our tradition, with our, you know, what it was to be an Irish American. To, to where it becomes really, you, you wear green on St. Patrick's Day. So it becomes not altogether that different than just about everybody else who celebrates St. Patrick's Day. Uh, but were, you, were your parents were, were practicing Catholics? Were you brought up in the church? I was, So that yeah. does make you a little different, Yeah, I seem right? to be one of the... Yeah, I, well, I mean, of course, this was quite normal among people of my generation growing up and... I grew up in Connecticut, which was, of course, originally a very WASP state founded by the Congregationalists originally, and then a, a wave, waves of Protestants. But by the time I was growing up, it had been substantially settled by a, various Catholics of various ethnic national traditions. So I grew up with a lot of Italians and Polish and German descent, a few Jews, but primarily Catholic and Protestant. And... We all, all of us, the Irish, the Polish, and so forth, Italians, we all went to catechesis. We all, you know, we would go with our families to church. And I think it's fair to say that I, I'm guessing, I don't know what the percentage is, but an awful lot of those people I grew up with are no longer practicing. That is absolutely part of, can we think of ourselves as the same generation? I think we probably can, right? Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Without going into gruesome details. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Why has that happened, Patrick? Let's, let's just start with that question before we get to the book, because it's true. Also, of my peers, um, those of us who have stuck it out are a minority at this point. And I think one of the questions that, that nags in my head reading your book is, how realistic is any of this when so many of the people who would naturally, one would think, support the kind of, I would say, communitarian Christian politics that you are espousing have, have, have left? How do you, what do you, how do you, what, what do they tell you when they say they've left? Or do they say that? Well, I don't actually know how much they think really deeply and consciously about it. I think for many of them, it just no longer 
had appeal. The idea of getting up on Sunday mornings to go do these rituals, it didn't seem to make sense to them anymore. They, Why uh, do you think they, that? They Why? Been... I mean, here's the, here's the question. Well, Where does this yeah. belief, this, this go? How is it? How does modernity actually be a solvent for it? Because that seems to me to be integral to what you're trying to reconjure, as it were. And my main problem with your book really is that I just don't find it in any way realistic in terms of where, for example, your peers whom you grew up with are. Well, I, I, I think, again, I was, I was attempting to explain this in the ways in which I think they would explain this. But I think the way the deeper way that this has worked is, and you know, this is you know, to beat a drum, I beat too much. I think ultimately, I'm an Aristotelian in this respect, an atomist in this respect. Our regime shapes us. The order as a whole shapes the kind of people we are, even if we're not conscious of the way that the regime shapes us. And so when I'm using this word regime, Andrew, I know that you know what I mean by this. I come from something of a Straussian training. And when I speak of regime, I'm, I'm translating the ancient Greek word politeia, which is the title of Plato's Republic, the actual title of the Republic. And it means not just constitution, it means the entire sort of prevailing belief system, the order as a whole. So it includes kind of the political constitution, but it goes well beyond the political constitution. And when I speak of regime, and when I use the title regime change, this is what I'm speaking of, is that we live in a regime, and there are lots of ways in which any regime we live in, to most people, is kind of invisible to them. It, it's sort of like the water in which a fish swims. It pervades kind of the, the, their daily lives, but they're not necessarily aware of it, of it at a deeply conscious level. And this is where the kind of work of political theorists we, we're interested in these questions. What's the nature of, of our regime? Yes, and, and, and I think it's the... And yeah, essentially what, what the ancients really talked about was how the nature of a regime affected the souls of the people who lived within it, of all varieties, different positions they might have in the society, but the whole, as it were, kind of shapes the individuals within it in an almost pre-rational way. We, we, we're communal. We, we follow signals. We follow our tribe and, and what it's doing, what it isn't doing. But to, to, get it, to get even deeper, because it seems to me this is where you go, this is a story that could be told from the 15th and 16th centuries onwards, is it not? That, the, that in some ways, this notion of a, a completely integrated world in which you grow up, in which the eternal truths that you are taught are reflected in every single institution which you come into contact with and with every custom that you're used to. You know, when I, used to, when I read history at Oxford, I, I read a lot about medieval England, medieval Europe, and how it was subjected to what was a top-down uh, revolution in what we might call the Reformation, in which people's churches, ways of life were ripped up and torn apart. They're very Houses of worship were destroyed. Every single th statue in them was destroyed. That they were so that was regime that change. was a real regime change, wasn't it? Now that happened mm -hmm. both top down, but it also happened bottom up. It also happened through individuals with new consciences, new ways of thinking. I'm just 
behind everything that you've written, I think, is the sense that we lost something. And, but my question is, we, 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 yes, we lost it. Where on earth are you expecting to find it again 500 years later? Well, I guess just, just, to, complete, just to complete the thought of the, the last thing you asked me about, why is it that my peers or my generation or our generation kind of, you know, as a word, you know, as you said, it was a kind of this modern world acted as a solvent on a lot of those inherited ways of life. It's, it's not that it was just abandoned for nothing or for non-belief. It was abandoned for a new set of beliefs. And this is, again, the nature of the regime. And this is why I say most of those peers wouldn't necessarily be able to answer this question at the level of sort of theoretical or philosophical consciousness. It just gets imbibed by, you know, messages that are constantly bombarding you from every direction in ways that are conscious, subconscious, unconscious. It can be through advertising. It can be through the political order. It can be through the social order. What, what the nature of our regime, and we'll call it liberal, the, the nature of the liberal regime is the belief that we are free. We're free human beings. And by that is meant we are, in a sense, self-making, self-creating, self-directing, independent, highly individualistic, ideally not understanding ourselves as created and therefore living in an order that has, that is an order and that has certain kinds of interdicts and makes demands and requires sacrifice and self-limitation and has strictures. So all of that, that, that regime runs contrary to everything that for, you know, growing up in a Catholic tradition, it would run contrary to everything that one would have learned in the, that Catholic tradition. So I don't think it, it, in many cases, it was ever, for many of my peers, it was ever a kind of deeply conscious choice. I actually was just listening to your conversation with Sarva Mar in which you were talking about conversion. Now, for those who enter the church from this liberal world, that requires a lot of thought. That requires a very conscious set of decisions. I'm going to adopt a set of beliefs that run deeply contrary to the kind of predominant worldview or the regime in which I live. But for most people, I think, who I'm describing and who we're talking about, it's not at the level of sort of conscious awareness. It's a kind of gradual adoption of this, of the values and, and the priorities and the self-understanding of this regime. And I think that, that, I think that, along with many other sort of more contingent sociological features, as well as, you know, some very unfortunate historical features of the church itself, which we can obviously point to. But more than any of that, it's the nature of the regime that kind of bled out that, that generation. Right. And I can yeah, see that. That's growing up now. roughly in the same time as you did, brought up as a strict Catholic, had a, a lovely elementary school Catholic education, was surrounded in many ways by Catholic ideas, by nature around me, by the sacraments. I was an altar boy. But when I went into secondary school, when I met people who were non-Catholics for the first time, really, I realized that, I had to, in some ways, dig deep and become a kind of warrior for my, ident for my identity against this world. At the same time, over time as I did that, I found I couldn't 
live in the world as it was constructed anymore without becoming some kind of hermit or worse, some kind of bitter, angry person trying to construct forms that had died. And, and I, I grew simply to just adjust to that and to realize that the faith I have or the faith that I had experienced was not something I could impose upon the rest of the world anymore. And it was something the rest of the world did not reflect. Obviously, in England, a much more secular country, the mockery of religious faith was also deep. So it was quite yeah. hard psychologically to sustain it. And, <laughs> uh, and then, of course, if you do go that far and you do try and sustain it and you do become a bit of a warrior for it, you were encountering a church institutionally that had also seemingly lost faith in it from the top down, as it were, not entirely, but there was a lot of that going on. And when you saw, for example, the church, the old church, just completely strip itself of all of its beauty, of its majesty, of its mystery, and become a living room for modern Catholicism, <laughs> as it were, you can see why many people just thought, well, why not another living room? Right. Why not a living, another living room that has slightly better aesthetics? Or why not just my own living room? Right. So I guess another biographical data point is that I, I think it's entirely likely that I would have also gone in the direction of the regime had it not been for the very serendipitous but maybe providential and faded fact that I entered an academic life. And that was not part of the plan. As I just mentioned, I didn't come from a family in which academ academics was a thing. In fact, I had no idea going to college. And even while I was in college, I had no idea where professors came from. I assumed they kind of took them out of closets at the universities and, you know, sort of set them up at a podium. I, I had no idea what went into the formation of a professor. But I had one professor who had a huge impact on my life at Rutgers University as an undergraduate. In fact, who in some ways made me first conscious of what I loved about my hometown. And he assigned, not for this reason, but he assigned Alexis to Tocqueville. And for, for your listeners who know some Tocqueville, some of his most affecting passages are his praise of the small town democracy in the townships of New England. And it, it was almost as if Tocqueville was writing those passages for me because it just it seemed to capture not just the political nature of the kind of town I grew up in, but the, the, the kind of social form that it required, a kind of a form of trust and mutual knowledge of each other that a, that a, a democratic politics like that requires a good degree of trust to that you know you're not just trying to take advantage of me if we if we disagree and that if we compromise it's not just I'm not getting what I wanted it's actually perhaps for the benefit of the entire town and the ways in which he describes township dem democracy in New England for me was that was that kind of that first moment when I felt like this is what kind of becoming aware of, of, of the world that you take for granted. And it happened relatively early. And around either the end of sophomore year, when I began thinking about what I might do, and I was thinking about law school, this professor said to me, well, no, you're not going to go to law school. You're going to go to graduate school. And I said, I, honestly, I said, what's that? I had no idea what graduate school was. And it, so it was through then going on to graduate school and political philosophy that I encountered the thinkers of the tradition that I had never been introduced to as a Catholic. I first read Augustine. I first read Aquinas. I first read Dante. I first read 
Thomas More, I, I read the riches of this faith tradition that sadly had been kind of withheld from, from us through our own tradition. And, and, and in many ways, I credit not so much my formation and upbringing as a Catholic, although I can see now clearly how all of that makes sense to me because I became much more conscious and aware intellectually of what that tradition was. But, but now suddenly I had the vocabulary and the way of thinking about this tradition that made it for me something deeply, you know, that, that to which I, you know, I, I could deeply commit and indeed believe that this was my, my role in the world to continue to attempt to advance. And, and, to, and one of the yeah. aspects of that kind of community, it seemed to me, was that the, the view of the world that would be held by someone in a rather what we might call an elite position and the view of the world who had, say, like a job in, in, in manual labor or the local mailman, and they were not completely that apart. They had some sense of commonality, some sense of common values, and, and could speak to one another in a way that I think the thing that your book really brings home, which is the crisis that we're dealing with, is that to some extent, our elites, as they've evolved, don't have a way of understanding or dealing with regular people, that, that the worlds have so divided that it becomes extremely hard. I, I know actually a couple, a gay couple actually, one of whom is, is, is part of the sort of elite, one of whom is not. And the poor dude who's not keeps getting tripped off being told he can't say that and can't say this. And, and he gets embarrassed by it. And I, when I've been out with him, I'm like, chill this this dude he's, he's a lovely guy he's allowed to say these things it's 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 part of a traditional way of life it's a kind of way that working class people speak to one another why are you why are you incapable of bridging well they did bridge actually they broke up eventually but they were trying to bridge this i saw it in a very very personal way i still feel some kind of bond with the irregular trump voter i i I don't know where it comes from, probably my background, just because I was brought up by people who didn't go to college. And there's a kind of friendly, easygoing sense of the world that I kind of identify and admire. I think well, for me, I'm, I'm blathering too much myself here, but my grandmother, who was utterly uneducated, completely lacking any kind of education at all, incredibly devout, I nonetheless looked up to her in a way. And I think Catholicism kind of, if it, if you imbued it, tells you this, right? It's the mm. same thing as Jesus right. talking about the widow's might, that the person you least think is the most important, is the most important, actually. And that mm. has been lost. Right. And part of the, what I think your book is good at is how meritocracy is a kind of solvent to that understanding of, of human solidarity. Yeah, I, in, in, I, I credit, in some ways, I credit... In the same way, you're talking about this in a biologic, but biological sense. Biographical, oh, biographical <laughs> sense. Sorry, it is biological and biographical. You're talking about this in a biographical sense. Um, I, I credit as well that kind of upbringing. In a, it was a middle class place, but I, you know, my relatives were all working class, especially my mom's side, and my grandparents were not. As I mentioned, they didn't go to college and. You, you didn't you didn't disdain them because of that. You didn't you know these were people of knowledge and wisdom and who deserved our respect. 
And I went to, and you know, here's maybe where I credit whatever trajectory my career intellectually has had, if we're going to attach it to our bi biographies, which is almost inevitable. It's because I went to public schools throughout my education. I just mentioned I went to Rutgers University for my undergraduate education, which for those of you who don't know, is should be actually called the University of New Jersey. It's the public university, state school of New Jersey. Uh, and that's where I also did my doctorate at, at Rutgers University. So I didn't, I didn't do my doctoral work at a, or my undergraduate work at an elite school. The, the typical classroom at Rutgers, you'd go around, you know how you do get the introductions on the first day. And the introductions would be, where are you from? And it would be, you know, the kids would say, I'm from Paramus, I'm from Newark, I'm from Vineland, I'm from, you know, Tenafly. And then it would get to me and I'd say, I'm from Windsor, Connecticut. And everyone would, the, the mouths would drop and they would say, wow, you came from so far away. You know, how, how is it you ended up here? And yet, you want to talk about diversity and inclusion. Those classrooms where everyone except for me, it was from some city or town in New Jersey. Those are really diverse classrooms. You'd want to talk about class diversity, race diversity, life experience diversity, first-generation college kids, fifth-generation college kids. The whole gamut was there in those places. Nobody was putting on airs. It was just kind of, this is what, and it kind of emulates what you're just describing about the Catholic Church. It's just kind of, as James Joyce described it, it's here comes everybody, right? It's just you throw a bunch of people into a room and you don't know what you're going to come up with. And my first experience with elite universities was, ironically enough, it was my first academic job. My first academic job was plucked out of complete obscurity. And I was offered a job at Princeton, you know, half hour down the road from Rutgers. And for the first time in my life, I'm in a class, I'm in classrooms with people from every imaginable compass point on the globe. Now you get people from every state in the United States, you get from every continent, almost every nation. And yet there was, they were all the same. They were all from the same class. They'd all gone to the same kinds of schools. They, know, they all knew exactly how to comport themselves. They were remarkably similar in a way that those classrooms at Rutgers weren't. And I began to suspect something was afoot when people began to talk, even then about the diversity and the, you know, the kind of pre-diversity and inclusion kinds of language. And I thought this is all just a kind of shroud. It's a shroud of a class that doesn't want anyone to know, even themselves to know, what's going on in these institutions. And your point, though, about meritocracy is that is that people who were selected on grounds of their abilities are uh, not that that, I mean, you have to have some element of that, presumably, in any society, right? And you do want people who are good at things to, to find the, the, thing, the hard things that they're good at. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't find meritocracy inherently bad. I mean, I'm glad that I was given an opportunity to really use whatever skills I had. No one in my family ever had that opportunity before. And I was, I was given a scholarship all the way through. I was lucky. I didn't have wealthy parents. But to, <laughs> to, to, to do that and think somehow you're more morally significant as a, as a, as a result of that. I think just somebody said in England, you know, the, just to talk about how one felt coming to a, like I was taken to Oxford of all places. Can you imagine? I mean, I, I, I and I was made a fellow, a demi-fellow. I mean, all these amazing things I was told. But I realized 
I also realized I, I, uh, I was, I was different than others in a sense that others had, like you're saying, in a sense of entitlement to the place. And I was just kind of staggered by the sudden privilege I was given. And, but I also realized that everyone here, a lot of people here are not like me. They don't share this view where they don't believe in God. They don't believe in the kind of simple values I took for granted. But at the same time, there's nothing I could do about that, really. There's nothing you can do about that. It's a, in a free society, elites are going to elite. So I want to I just press you on this because part of your goal is to change the elite, it seems to me, that, that essentially you're not saying... That's the, that's the title of the book, Andrew. <laughs> Regime change. change. It doesn't have the word elite in it. And it could be getting right. rid of the, the elite entirely. And, yeah. But you actually want right. to re reform them in a way. And I I yeah, find but, I but, found your description right, of is, that, I'll be honest with you, completely implausible. So just to go back to where we began, when I speak of regime change, it's not just like, let's replace this group with this group. We want to have Republicans instead of Democrats. We want to have this... You know, but that would be easy. You're, what you're proposing that is would be easy. Exactly. Hard. That would be easy. Right. Exactly. That would be easy. So what I'm proposing is actually not just change the elite. As you as you point out, and as I regularly point out in the book, there's always going to be an elite. There's always going to be a leadership class. And so what's the nature of that leadership class? What are its commitments? What does it you know, what does it seek to advance? And what what you're and trying this, to I, yeah. you, you, you in some ways there were there were elements of the elites that I went to at Oxford, for example, who had been told, you came from landed gentry. You have all this privilege. Therefore, you must serve. You must serve the people. Mm -hmm. That's your, there's a kind of noblesse oblige that, that this is public service is a part of this, a sense that you are not simply separate than the whole. And of course, in the UK, in the Second World War, for example, I mean, just that was communally enforced in a way. I mean, I think that the symbol of of Churchill taking the 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 the, the metal, the black metal railings from the from the front yards of Belgravia to melt them into armaments to just say no one, everyone has to sacrifice in this sense, and that was a very strong element of Toryism. It seems to me that that's also what you're in some ways trying to retrieve Israeli's notion of an elite that connects with the working class in a way against the striving liberal middle classes. And that's, that's but when I look at the elite today, Patrick, I, I, the idea they're going to become 19th century Victorian Tories strikes me as uh, unlikely. Let me put it that way. No, it's absolutely... Look, they're not. They're certainly not going to give up power without a fight. That's that's for certain. But if we go back again to the to our conversation about what's the nature of our regime, and I used a few words, it's a liberal regime. It seeks to advance a world in which we believe in our kind of radical independence, the capacity for self making, that we are most fundamentally understand ourselves to be individuals in the world. Then that's going to have a particular kind of effect on the nature of the elite. And so you just said, you want to have a world in which you have people who are good at things. You, we want to have people, we call it meritocracy, people who have 
certain abilities are going to rise to the top in advancing those abilities or, or being able to practice those abilities. I want to I want to be able to go to an orchestra with the best musicians. I, I don't want to go to one which has been randomly selected. I'm not a big believer in orchestras by lot. But I think what we have to really think about is what is the what is going to be the kind of constitutive nature of that of that kind of meritocracy or this new aristocracy with those presuppositions lying in the background of their sh of, of of what has shaped them of what has formed them and one of the things that i think you know i certainly hit this quite a bit in the book and it's been argued by a number of people including maybe one of your old teachers i don't know if michael sandel was around at harvard i taught for him i was one of his teaching assistants yeah. for, for, so, for several classes yeah. so his yeah so his recent book on meritocracy and there have been an earlier generation of this these kinds of arguments was christopher lash who, who looms large for me in this book is an argument that the the meritocracy so-called that that has replaced the old aristocracy it is not, it now suffers from certain features of a kind of a sense of having achieved its position solely and exclusively through its own efforts of having in a sense really no one to thank maybe their parents but they really was through their own efforts and not really necessarily owing anything to anyone that that and then, and then a further implication is that those who have not succeeded in the same path have only themselves to blame. And even if it's not said out loud, and sometimes it is said out loud, and I have a few choice quotes in the book where I talk about people saying this out loud, I think it's nevertheless deeply internalized in, in a systemic way by the leadership class. So the, the, the big the big kind of critique that develops in the early liberal era, the beginnings of the liberal era, is that the aristocrats of that day aren't really committed to noblesse oblige. They're not really genuinely committed to it. I think we're in a similar point where no one really thinks that the leadership, or I should say, people who are not in the leadership class no longer believe that they are really a good leadership class, that there is a kind of, there's a moment and you you think there's there's no prospect or little prospect of change. I think there's a surprisingly real prospect of change, precisely because I think we're at a similar linchpin moment where the claims of the ruling class no longer match, in some ways, uh, no longer are appealing to those who are, in some ways, they, they suppose. So we're at a moment like late 19th century Britain, in which Israeli emerged to say, look, we have two nations. They are increasingly unrecognizable. We, the Tories, are going to speak to one nation and affirm these core values again. That's that's roughly what you're saying. But when it comes, sorry, go on. I don't. No, I, well, I think that I, I think these kind. I, I think that's one historical moment you can point to. And I think there are a lot of historical. But this really didn't undo um, Britain's liberal economic order. Yes, he was more protectionist. Yes, the Tories wanted to protect some of the home industry. So you have a certain amount of protectionism going on. But but the British Empire continued. The, the trade was essential to their fortunes. Manufacturing industry kept going. You see, I think in some ways, yes, liberalism and meritocracy implies you do feel you did a certain amount yourself and you did it on your own steam, as it were. But I don't think that means you have no no feeling of 
responsibility of the broader order. It just means that they maybe have a different sense of what that is. In many cases, they think their job as elites is to mandate the 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 protection and elevation of certain minority groups that they regard as having been historically marginalized. So in fact, this elite that, that you see is actually is actually saying, no, we do want to help the common people, as it were, as long as they are a black, Latino, gay, queer, whatever. So isn't that a kind of new noblesse oblige, but just not in the way that you would like? Yeah, so like this is actually one of the main the main arguments, which I'm quite certain some will not like very much. In fact, many will not like very much, and especially those I work with will not like very much. But that this is, a, in a sense, this project of inclusion that, you know, especially is taking place at the elite institutions. This has become, you know, the mandate, the, the kind of fundamental project, the social project of these institutions. And as you have, as you have noted, this is, of course, spilling out into all, all kinds of ways into the, the real world beyond the university. We all live on, on campus now. That, that, in fact, that this functions in the same way that a kind of not very well done noblesse oblige functioned for the previous aristocracy. In other words, this functions as the kind of class justification of why it is we're in charge, and in particular, we're in charge and what makes us particularly morally better, morally preferable to somebody else being in charge is because we're committed to this kind of egalitarian inclusion of the marginalized. But the form and the way in which this takes place is that it does so by leaving intact the meritocratic institutions that are kind of ruthlessly sifting the winners from the losers and continuing to do so in a way that allows for a, an ongoing belief in my own merit, my own, you know, sort of self-achievement. And in other words, it conforms seamlessly with this liberal regime. It, it conforms to it and allows for, it, it works as a kind of, again, a kind of class, a shroud on the class interest that's involved that leaves intact the institutions. It's, of the it's so interesting to hear you come at it from that angle, because that is an angle that many on the left, are, 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 are the old left in, in some ways, are coming at it too, by saying that woke capitalism is really a way in which you put out this patina of social commitment, as it were, to, but in fact, is, is simply a way in which you, you, you facilitate your own rule more effectively and, and manage to deflect criticism of it from a more a basic economically populist viewpoint. That's right. Yeah, so no, I, I actually, I was rereading the book in preparation for our conversation because I really have forgotten most of what I said in it, as, as happens between when one finishes it and when it's published. And I am struck by how much of it is really is, is relies on a lot of Marx and Marxist categories for analysis. But I guess where I would draw or at least want to distinguish myself is I'm using these kind of Marxist forms of analysis in defense of what I want to call a kind of conservatism. And I do see where a kind of Marxist analysis and a conservative analysis travel down the road together some distance. 
but eventually they they they'll part ways. But it is a, it's actually ex, ex, an extremely valuable way of understanding the class dimension that I was talking about earlier when I was comparing Rutgers and Princeton and the nature of those. It's economically illiberal, as it were, that you're both countering liberalism. I yes. So when I speak of when I speak of liberalism, and maybe this is we haven't sort of articulated this yet. It's of course not only the progressivism that I think you're you're generally we would probably have a lot of agreement about that, but it's also classical liberalism, which I, I see as really ultimately sharing a lot more in common with progressivism that you would I know that you would resist and many of well, your listeners I, would resist. I think that there that here's a point in your book that I found quite quite challenging. And that is the notion that the Hobbes Lockean settlement, as it were, was somehow rooted in a desire for progress. I don't read it that way myself. I don't. I think actually the liberal order was premised on a desire for order, first and foremost, because the kind of regime that you kind of feel some nostalgia for could not command universal assent. And it, because it was raising issues of such profound importance, such as the meaning of life and, and, and exactly how does one access God or the Catholic-Protestant divides, it couldn't be sustained. In fact, as it went on, it became a function of civil war as these different, these different ideas of a totalizing integral regime competed with each other. And in fact, that created such awful trauma, violence, murder, discord, upheaval, exactly the things that you say you don't like. But the attempt to sustain an integral whole in the face of a, a growing human consciousness of alternatives eventually became a form of chaos. And liberalism was an attempt to say, let us establish certain basic rights of human individuals in order to protect them, from, in order to get some basic consensus, in order to have some kind of overwhelming sovereignty that can actually have legitimacy and order. And it seems to me that if you're trying to establish a whole new regime in thought as well as in the elite, of course, you're going to create enormous amounts of dissension, enormous amounts of conflict, exactly the kind of conflict about ultimate goods that liberalism was designed to get out of. So you actually just a few minutes ago told, talked about the ways in which the Protestant settlement of the conflict between the Protestants and the Catholics, how that was settled. And that was not it didn't begin orderly. No, it, well, it, it did in a way, in the sense that it was the government, the government uh, that imposed it. But what I'm saying is, that's that right. It was take it forward right. another 150 years when you suddenly have this divide in Christendom between two rival forms of Christianity, and you have civil war all over the continent, even in England, which disrupted ways of life as powerfully as any as any liberalism, as it were. And liberalism came in as a so, way to to create a civil peace. And you seem to think that we, so if we is, just yeah, got rid of liberalism, the, we yeah. could have some kind of civil peace. I, I, I see we would, we would have something like a civil war. Well, I, Hi there. I'm suggesting is the this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, 
it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.